Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on January 20th. The article for that call will be Acute Onset Floaters and Flashes. Is this patient at risk for retinal detachment? Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Laura Esserman, first author of the article published in the October 21st issue of JAMA, titled Rethinking Screening for Breast Cancer and Prostate Cancer. And I must say, this is quite a timely uh, article. Dr. Esserman is surgeon and breast cancer oncology specialist practicing at the University of California, San Francisco, Carol Frank Buck Breast Care Center, where she has also been director since 1996. She is founder and faculty leader of the program in translational informatics, spanning the disciplines of bioinformatics, medical and clinical informatics, systems integration, and clinical care delivery. In 1996, she started the Center for Excellence for Breast Cancer Care to integrate clinical care, research, automate tools for the capture of patient and clinical information, and develop systems to tailor care to biology, patient preference, and performance. Dr. Esserman is nationally known and internationally known as a leader in breast cancer and has published over 150 articles. She is currently developing a University of California-wide breast cancer initiative called Athena, uh, designed to follow 400,000 women from screening through treatment and outcomes incorporating the latest in molecular testing and web-based tools into the course of care. Welcome, Dr. Esserman. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. And it's great to have you here. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Esserman's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on her article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from Dr. Esserman about her research findings that can improve patient care. Uh, together, we will help you translate this research into strategies for improvements in your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Esterman will spend about 10 minutes reviewing her findings, and then we'll take about five minutes to consider some of the implications in real-world practice settings. Then we will set the stage for questions and comments from you. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a wonderful forum in which you get clarification on anything in the article itself and to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and steps you may take in using the information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but offering up your experience in this area, will be helpful to the call. There are approximately 75 phone lines connected to the call, uh, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on a listen-only mode. Uh, one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcast. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior off in the room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Let me again welcome Dr. Esserman, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Esserman. Thanks so much. Um, before I start, I want to emphasize <clears throat> that I am, in addition to uh, being a researcher, I am a practicing clinician, as is Dr. Thompson, who uh, leads the uh, who's chair of urology at the University of Texas, San Antonio. And the purpose of this article was to try and galvanize our thinking around screening and to improve the care that we give our patients and to try and figure out how to not just discuss whether screening us are good or bad, but to try and figure out how to move forward and make it better. So let me just start by saying that in both breast and prostate cancer, and again, in any screening situation, you want to really look at the, you know, after 25 years of, of widespread screening, or at least 20 years of widespread screening, you want to take a step back and say, okay, well, what have we accomplished here? And, and really take a hard look to try and look for opportunity to say, here's where it works, here's where maybe we ought to be thinking about how, you know, where, where we might have generated problems. And we started off by trying to think about what is the what, what's the right paradigm for screening. 
And the right paradigm, you know, if, if you have a perfect screening test, you know, the idea is you would have an initial, when you first introduce screening, you're going to have an initial increase in the number of cancers you detect. But over time, what will happen is that the overall cancer rates should come to back down to the same, but you should be shifting the fraction of low-risk cancers or early-stage cancers, and that should be much higher, and the fraction of what we call regional or nodal spread disease should be quite a bit lower, or even more perfectly, if you are finding a lot of in situ disease, then that should really take up the bulk of your, that should become the bulk of what you detect, as we see in cervical cancer. However, there are situations where, in fact, the screening overall incidence, to screening the overall incidence of cancer will go up. And if you just look and say, well, look, what percentage of cancers are low-grade or low-risk cancers, low-grade for prostate and, and um, early-stage cancers for breast cancer? And if we say, wow, we've gone from you know, 40% now up to 70%, gee, that's great. But in fact, all those scenarios can give you the same outcome. So you can be fooled. So as an intermediate metric, the percentage of, of early cancers as a fraction of the total can fool you. And what you want to do is make sure that you, that you haven't just increased the total number of cancers and that by looking more, you're finding more. And certainly, there are a number of things that must be contributing to the, to the rate of rise of both breast and prostate cancer, but I think it's safe to say that screening is one of those significant contributors. And we find that, there, that that is a problem, and it's really important to recognize it. So then what we wanted to do is take a step back and say, well, when would screening work best? And this is not just our work, but this is, this is the work of many others, from David Eddy on, who did the modeling for, for and screening tools. Screening periodic, and, and, and this is important later when we get to the U.S. Preventive Task Force guidelines, routine screening means a, a periodic screen uh, in, in either an annual or a biannual basis. Where is that going to make the most difference? So if you think about the biology of cancer and you think about slow-growing cancers, that you know maybe are fairly indolent, and I think uh, you know I think that finding them early isn't going to make a difference. So if you want to go back to the principles of screening, you know finding it early has to make a difference, and certainly you don't want to find them early if they're never going to kill you in the first place. That we worry about a lot with prostate cancer, and people really do understand that story. But I think what we've demonstrated is the story is very similar in breast cancer, so we have to be aware of that. And for these most aggressive cancers your chance of being able to find those with periodic screening is going to be very small because either by the time they're small, they're already in the nodes or because they grow so quickly that they're going to show up what we call in the interval between screens. And we see that in both breast and prostate cancer. So part of this is just coming to terms with what screening can do well and what, it, and, and what, it, and what we can't expect from it. A, screening is not prevention. It's just early detection. And which kinds of cancers is it going to make the most difference for? So for those moderate to slow growth cancers, it's going to make the most difference. But on either edge, you know, it's going to pick up more uh, slow growing tumors that may never come to clinical attention, and it may miss these very aggressive cancers. So what we wanted to do is introduce a, you know, a strategy for trying to think about how to improve and how to, how to move forward. And both what we said and, and, you know, in, and also what this, the U.S. Uh, uh, Permanent Task Force guidelines sort of pointed out or their, their analysis pointed out that you know, you, where screening leads to many, many tests and very little benefit, you want to really think about whether it makes a difference. So there's several things that we wanted to point out. The first thing we have to do is develop and validate biomarkers to differentiate what we call significant minimal risk cancers. Knowing that many of the cancers we detect, maybe 30% of the cancers we're detecting, are going to be these low-risk or very low-risk cancers, knowing, particularly in breast cancer, that there are some of these tools available, people should be thinking about that. And the older you get, the more common that is, which is why we don't think you should be screening as, you know, particularly as people get over 75 or so, it, you know, there really are very diminishing returns. So that's really important. So just to be aware of that so that we don't over-treat. So the people who are doing the screening, they can only tell you what's there. So they can't not, 
to you know say that a cancer is there if, if they're not there. The second thing that we want to really think about is we want to reduce the treatment burden for minimal risk disease, and we want to reduce the the intervention burden. We you know there's a huge variation internationally in the rates of biopsy, with the U.S. many areas in the U.S. being among the highest, and it's been well documented that the best mammographers find the find the most cancers in biopsy the least. So getting a trained mammographer to read your films or, you know, someone who's really good at that, for example, is very is very important. But also I think as a community, you know, perhaps letting these lesions that have a 3% risk or so, these are the kinds of things, 5%, 10% risk of being DCIS. We don't have to go after those because they're probably slow growing and we're not going to make a difference. So I think we need to take a step back and say, what is, what's the purpose of screening? What are we trying to do? We're trying to find those kinds of cancers that are going to you know, potentially kill people. We're finding them early would make a difference. And on the prostate cancer side, you know, even when you have a PSA, determining whether or not you should get a biopsy, can, you can use tools like the uh, prostate cancer um, risk calculator to understand not just what's your risk of prostate cancer, but what's your risk of high-grade cancer. And in particular, if you have a high risk, maybe you want to think about prevention, not just screening. So we, we think that it's really important to continue to develop these tools for informed uh, decision-making, and clearly I think something to help people in their 40s determine whether or not they should screen is probably a good idea. Uh, and I think we want to focus on prevention for the highest-risk patients. I think that's really very important. And finally, I think the last thing that we would really very, very much encourage is to try and really think about, instead of everyone doing small biomarker studies, to really kind of galvanize our resources to do some really large demonstration uh, projects. I mean, we haven't, uh, there's a, some, some going on in, in prostate cancer, but we haven't really done a big demonstration project in breast cancer in a long time. We're really trying to link our approach to screening, prevention, treatment, and follow-up. And I think that's probably going to be the way in which we can really uh, move the field forward and, and use that as a forum for continual improvement in the way we deliver our services. Um, so um, I think just in summary, I think if we wanted to uh, just talk about the take-home points, you know, I think the first thing is to remember that cancers are heterogeneous. You know, they're, they can... Uh, they can be very fast growing, they can be slow growing. And here, you know, if someone shows up with a big mass in between a normal screen, just because they had a screen six months ago doesn't mean that you should ignore it. In fact, those are just the one people that you should be working up. And to remember, while they're much more common at younger age, these more aggressive cancers, they can occur at any age. So someone who shows up with a new mass, regardless of any screening test, should be worked up. And the corollary, of course, is that people can get have fairly indolent cancers, and we should um, be mindful of that and, and maybe look to identify a class of people that, that we would not even call cancer. Maybe we call them idle tumors. That's a term that we uh, recommended in the, in the article. So I think the second thing, uh, that the second key take-home point um, would be that, you know, I think we need to have a more judicious and tailored use of screening. Uh, I actually think the U.S. Preventive Task Force guidelines are a very good place to start, and we, I'm sure callers will be interested in that, and we can certainly talk about that uh, more as we go, as we go forward. Um, and uh, I think it's important to think about things like risk stratification, comorbidity should be taken into account when you're screening older men and older women, and make sure that you're using screening where you think it's really going to make a difference, not just cause uh, complications or interventions. And then lastly, I think, you know, for sure we can and we must do better. Uh, I think there are lots of ways where you can, um, particularly in breast cancer, you know, use trained biomarkers, uh, really work, I think, on reducing the number of biopsies. I think we can, there's really much more room for improvement uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, in reducing the number of interventions. And we can, that's part of the problem with the number needed to treat in those young women from the U.S. Preventive Task Force guidelines. You know, so they say, you know, you have to screen, to, you, know, the, the, you know, the benefits are more marginal in this young age group, and, you know, you're screening 2,000 women for 10 years for and probably generating about 1,100 biopsies and may diagnose 10 cancers, only one of which you may make a difference on. So I think if we can, you know, definitely do a better job on, 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 on what we intervene about and who we call back, uh, we can maybe improve that, that risk ratio and do a better job. So I think I'll stop there. Great.
Well, thank you very much, Dr. Esserman, first for your excellent work in what I think is a really complex topic, um, and one that as a practicing internist, um, I really welcome a chance to think a little bit more about how to use screening, although I will say candidly, this I think presents a challenge for those of us in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to turn a little bit to how your research suggests how we should change clinical practice. And you know, specifically, very concrete guidelines are relatively easy to implement. Um, the more complex a guideline gets or the more variables we need to think about, I think the harder our job becomes as practitioners, and, and certainly not the least of which is helping our patients understand the choices that we're making. So I'd like to first you know, ask your suggestions on how uh, those of us really on the front lines of screening um, should incorporate your work and or the guidelines from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force into how we approach screening with our patients. Well, I think the easiest, um, I think there's some very concrete things that you can do. I think the easiest place to start is in older women. There is no data that supports screening over the age of 74. There's nothing that says that screening improves or saves lives. So I think the reason we have, so we have to think about that and say, well, what, what's behind that? Well, the older you get, the more likely you are to have these, you know, much more indolent cancers. So early detection there is unlikely to make a difference. So there's a right? change, right, there's a change in both the severity of the disease and the life expectancy of the individual. Exactly. So for sure, if you have someone with a couple comorbidities in their 70s, there's no value to screening. I mean, there's their, their breast cancer is not going to be their big issue. This has been shown now by a number of investigators. And, you know, both women and practitioners should welcome that because you don't want to then be putting someone who's, you know, 82 on a stereotactic biopsy table or taking them to the operating room where you may cause a whole bunch of other problems for very unlikely benefit. Um, you know, I think that the, you know, as, as, as if you take an epidemiologic view of screening and, and cancer, you say, look, we only really want to be finding these cancers. We're finding them early. We'll make a difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that both because of the biology, the kinds of cancers that tend to appear in women who are older, and because they have competing risks of death, that I think you need to take that into account. If you have an incredibly healthy individual, you may extend their screening, you know, a little bit longer, maybe up to 78 or, or, or 80, but you're not – there's a beginning and an end, and I think it's important for us to think about for all of these interventions, we don't have to give them to everyone just because we can, and we want to really hone in on where it's going to really make a difference. Now, in terms of the frequency, okay, so I, I, I think there's actually quite a bit less controversy about screening older women, and I think that in, this is about you shouldn't be thinking about routine screening after the age of 74. You just shouldn't, and even after the age of 70, I think if someone's got a lot of comorbidities, then you know you're just not going to you're just not going to do that. You're just not going to order screening. You can have a conversation about it, but you don't need to do it. So then, in in the terms of the frequency, right? How how often? You know, I think that there's ample data that that you know all the data from from Sweden in particular. That's what has has driven all of the 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 data about benefit from screening. But they did it on a 18 month to 24 month basis. Um, so it's perfectly reasonable to, to screen a little less, little less frequently, and you know that also decreases the number of interventions that a person might have to go through. Um, and I, so I think that should be uh, a welcome change. Now we'll get to the little more controversial, which is the women in their 40s. And I right. think here's this is this is what's really generated a lot of a lot of angst. I think there's. Um, and that reminded me to talk about palpable masses because I don't want to. I want to make sure people get that message. So I think for women in their 40s, I think we have to be realistic that if you're going to screen, screening is not likely. It's screening isn't going to make a huge difference. I think if you have someone who's at high risk, you know, and you look at their risk factors, you're definitely going to want to screen them. But you also want to think about prevention. You know, thinking about tamoxifen in their 40s, it has the fewest side effects and the most significant benefits. So if you have a woman in their 40s with atypia, they're at very significant risk. You could drop that risk by perhaps 80%, you know, by five years of tamoxifen where you have almost no side effects. You know, so at least getting someone to try it for, for five years is important. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing that, you know, we know from the ECOG study that was just published in uh, the Journal of Clinical Oncology that if you had a three, you know, two and a half centimeter low to intermediate grade DCIS, 
your risk of an invasive cancer is probably 3% at five years. Now, I can barely get women with a Gale score of three, which means a 3% or 4% risk at five years, to take tamoxifen, right? And so here on one side, we're doing mastectomies or we're doing radiation and all kinds of things for the same kind of risk. So I think we we need to do a much better job about integrating what we know about prevention and DCIS and these things and sort of really kind of reconciling that and really kind of be more serious about trying to think about populations at risk where we can, where we where some of the interventions we have, at least let people know about them. So I think that that's, that's very important. And you might find if someone is very anxious, if every time they come in, you know, you order a biopsy that that's going to make them crazy, then don't screen. Because you're, you're probably, your life, you're not putting their life on the line. You know, if you really wanted to, you know, we would save 50 times as many women's lives if we just got cigarettes off the market. So, I mean, I think you have to put these things in perspective. You know, and if you have someone who's just very vigilant and it's not going to be too much, you know, bothered by being called back and feels they understand the risks and what, and what to accept and they want to screen, I think that's fine. The guidelines don't say don't screen. They say right. don't make it routine. Don't make, it's like don't put PSA as part of your panel without discussing it with your patients so you can prepare them and they understand what's happening. Right? And, and if you found someone who has a very strong family history, you might, may want to evaluate them for BRCA1 and BRCA2 and, and screen them very differently with MRI and, and, and mammograms you know, at alternating at six months. See, we want to be more thoughtful and more tailored Right. about so, our screening and, and provide better tools for people to help make these decisions. Yeah, so the theme I'm really hearing coming through in general and specifically for younger women is that we need to do a much better job at beginning to risk stratify Correct. individuals, not only to help them or help us make informed decisions about who to screen, how often to screen, but also to think a little bit about uh, prevention, which is, a, uh, I think, an area that at least on the front lines, we don't think about nearly as much as we should, both for breast cancer and for prostate cancer. That's correct. And so, you know, so if you're going to look at someone, you can go to the breast cancer risk calculator and say, I mean, prostate cancer risk calculator, which just go to Google and put that in, it'll come up, and it'll give you an idea. If someone is at high risk, screening is not going to prevent them from having cancer, but there's now data on finasteride that they can try. It doesn't mean they have to, but it's, it's an option and they should know about it. It's, it's the same way we think about statins. Right, so I, I, I really am trying to get us to be thinking more about the paradigm for what we have for, for, for cardiac disease. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we've driven down the rates of, of, of cardiac events so much. And I think we need that same kind of intense effort with biomarkers and understanding that we need the same kind of thing. That's what these demonstration projects like Athena and so on should be about. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And that's uh, really, I think, very uh, fascinating reframing, again, of what our role should be in healthcare to help manage these conditions and diseases. Did you want to make one quick comment on management of palpable mass oh, yeah, before yeah, we move thanks. on to our yeah. callers? Thanks. And I, again, I want to remind people that the most aggressive cancers will often show up between screens if you're getting screened. You know, we know, we know that from a number of studies and we know that just from the look at what we call interval cancers. Uh -huh. So this would be people with this skyrocketing PSAs or people who show up with a big mass and be, or, or even a, a small mass but node positive disease, you know, four months after a normal screening mammogram. So it is, every cancer doesn't take eight years to grow. In fact, some cancers um, can grow very, very quickly. So if someone shows up with a new mass in between screens, you need, to take, you need to take it seriously. And I think the preventive guidelines were when they said don't do self-breast exam, they were talking about some of these, these teaching, teaching tools like Mamacare and so on where you have someone do a 45-minute self-breast exam. That, I think, makes people crazy, and then we wind up sticking needles in every palpable mass everybody feels. So what you really want to do is there's a campaign in the U.K. They say be breast aware, be aware. So the idea is every woman should know sort of what their breast exam feels like and so that they would be aware of their bodies, and if there's a change, they'll find them. Most people whose cancers come to attention as clinical masses, the women find them themselves in almost yeah. all cases. So we don't want to give the message, don't be aware, don't pay attention. That's, that's the wrong message. 
Perfect. Well, thank you, and that's very, very helpful. Um, I'd like now to go ahead and go to our callers uh, and get questions. And your questions can, as callers can certainly include discussing the implications of this research, um, how to use the information that Dr. Esserman has uh, provided us, or to talk about how we might, again, incorporate these changes into our clinical practice. And we certainly welcome examples of what you've already done in terms of trying to deal with um, the complex question of screening and, and how we effectively risk stratify patients. Uh, so, uh, Tamika, let's go ahead and uh, open up the lines for our callers. Thank you. The question and answer session will be conducted electronically. If you would like to ask a question, please do so by pressing star 1 on your touchtone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure that your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Once again, that is star 1 to ask a question. And do we have any questions in the queue at this time? Yes, sir. We'll take our first question from Richard Winder with Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, hi. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Esselman, uh, Rich Winder. Uh, I'm, one of the things that we're trying to grapple with is the, uh, and it, I think was mentioned at some point that we would discuss, is the implications of the task force guideline, and you said that would be a good starting point perhaps in looking at guidelines. In your view, do you, do you think that uh, screening, mammography screening for women in their 40s should be discussed with every woman in their 40s? Should there be a personal discussion with each patient? Or are there certain patients whose risk is low enough that it needn't be brought up? Um, I really think it's, you know, at this point, uh, I think it probably should be a discussion. Because it isn't that there's no benefit. It's just that the benefit's very small. But there is a cost to it. And one of the costs is also, you know, a lot of the DCIS or the things that we might find, we're not positive, you know, that that's, that that's an advantage. So we may be overdiagnosing or finding things that may not go on to clinical attention. So I think people need to be aware of the consequences of that. So I think that we, what the task force is saying, rather than make it routine, make sure you have a conversation. And I am aware that that leaves internists a little bit in the lurch and, and that we haven't really developed tools to help guide that conversation. Um, we actually have worked on, been working on this website called Breast Health Decisions, which we hope to have out on the, um, on the NCI uh, CA Big Grid, which would make it available to anybody uh, to use. But I think it probably would behoove us to do something like that to help people make better informed choices in their 40s and to guide both physicians and patients in making that decision. So if I may, in your view then, um, the, the benefit would outweigh the risk of, of offering women in their 40s a chance to participate in that decision? Yeah, I think that women should be given the chance to participate. And I think many will and many won't. Well, I think that makes sense in, in terms of sort of the emerging sense of really shared decision-making and informed, activated patients. Uh, it certainly does make sense to involve them. And, and I would argue, I think our standard of care is probably evolving behind the science. And in, in many areas, um, one could argue that the standard of care certainly is to engage women in this conversation. Right. And I think part of it is, you know, it's like when if I, even in a high-risk woman, when I offer an MRI, no, I, I tell them, look, here are three, here, I want to prepare you before we embark on this journey. I want to tell you what can happen. I might find something that really looks like a cancer, and chances are that it really will likely be a cancer, and, we'll have, and if we can't find it by ultrasound, then we'll have to do an MRI-guided biopsy. On the other hand, I might find that we, there's nothing there, and that's great. But the greatest chance is that we might find all kinds of stuff that is probably low risk, but I won't necessarily be able to resolve. And I think here is where we have to be, you know, where I think people have to be more judicious. The goal of screening is not to identify every last little abnormality in the breast, right? And I think that we have to be more judicious about letting things go and, and, and having protocols where we can watch people as opposed to always, off, always recommending a biopsy. And that goes for both MR and for mammography screening, and I think there's room for improvement in both of these areas. But by having a woman prepared that these are the, this is what can happen to them, I think that they that they don't freak out that they don't they don't get quite so anxious and upset when it happens and you know you want to kind of mitigate some of the some, some of the downsides some of the harm. Great. So so really you're advocating for that conversation yeah. uh, before the test to even talk about the different branch points. Right. Because what the data is that you know 30 to 50 percent chance that you'll get a biopsy if you screen for 10 years. Yeah. 
great. All right, well, Rich, thank you for your question. Did that address things sufficiently? Yes, I, 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 I'm still having trouble understanding how that translates to a C in a task force that sounds like a B with shared decision making. But I realize you're you're not members of the task force, so it's hard. Well, to I think that. part of it. I think part of it is is because there is while there's you know if they thought there was no benefit, they would have given it a D. Um, if they thought there was a strong benefit, they would have given it a B. But there is a benefit, but it's not a lot of benefit, and a lot of procedures are generated. As I said, if you screen 2,000 women for 10 years, you might diagnose 10 cancers, one of which you might make a difference on, but you would generate 1,100 biopsies. So that's the data, that's, that's the assessment that they came up with, so that's why they gave it a C. Great. All right, well, thank you for your question. Uh, are there any more callers uh, in the queue at this time, Tamika? Yes, we'll take our next question from James Zosik with University of Michigan Medical Center. Great. Go ahead, James. Yeah, I'm an anesthesiologist, so I don't get directly into the uh, prognostication here. But the big thing I have familiarity with is guidelines and the sense of guidelines tend to decrease people's variability in their practice, which is a good thing. But for those of us that are staunch believers in evolution and looking at medicine as an evolutionary process, because we never get anything right the first time around, <laughs> it's a process, uh, you know, and, oh, gee, you know, no, we don't need to aggressively take guys' prostates out. My, you know, frequency of doing radical retropubic prostatectomies has decreased dramatically since we found, hey, people don't die of this problem. They die of their other problems there. How do we no. get guidelines uh, established with flexibility and re-examination of the guidelines because once the insurance payers say, oh, we're only going to pay if you follow the guidelines, once the government says we're only going to reimburse you if you follow the guidelines, how do we set up these? Because you're the people coming up with the, the rule saying, oh, we don't need to screen anymore. How do we put that into a process that makes it evolve and continually get better rather than be a static one of, oh, we've answered that question and now it's set. We just don't screen until you hit the, you know, 70 or we stop screening when you're 70. So I love that question because that, I, I feel just as you do. I mean, a guidelines is static and what you really want is quality improvement. And so that was, um, so I've sort of put my mind where my mouth is and said, okay, well, we need to sort of create a, uh, a demonstration project where, where we're not just doing the Framingham thing, where we're trying to find out what the biomarkers are, but we're actually putting into practice and continuously evolving and changing. So, for example, you, you know, we could take our best models today for looking at risk assessment, be finding out who's at risk, you know, trying to when people get a cancer that's diagnosed, figuring out, you know, there's about five different you know tools that you can use to assess the risk of the, that cancer that that cancer has for progression. And as you continue to work on this, every year you should be able to evolve, change, change your, your recommendations for what biomarkers to use to assess cancer risk. You know, it probably will take, you know, five-year you know, five increments to make changes in prevention, but, you know, you could at least understand who is at risk for what kinds of cancers. So you can start to do a much better job of getting to that point of, oh, well, then are there particular people who really are not at risk that don't need to be screened and people who really are, and, and really, more important than just finding out whether people are at risk for cancer, yes or no, we want to know who's at risk for the aggressive cancers where people are more likely to die. Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that, that, that having this notion where we go from where we really have an infrastructure where we can continually gather data and constantly reassess that you would hope that things would change. I mean, I think it's remarkable that people are so upset that there might be some recommendation or change or improvement after 25 years of screening. I don't know any other product that's gone on the market that hasn't changed or evolved in, in 25 years. Well, that's and, an interesting perspective. And, and so really what I think James is getting at is how do we, either as a medical profession or as a society, um, be sure that we, number one, view these guidelines as evolutionary, and two, make sure we're doing exactly the kind of work that you did that is checking back and rethinking. Um, well, that, so, one way, so one way to do that is to take the attitude and say that, you know, research and clinical care aren't separate, that we shouldn't just be taking care of people. We should be learning from every patient we see, and we should evolve systems that allow us to collect, you know, essential or germane data that go into a continuous model for learning and improvement. 
I think that's, that's an essential frame shift, and I think that perhaps would be the most important thing we can do in terms of healthcare reform. I mean, we know that healthcare is expensive, and the one thing that we don't want to do is apply resources that don't improve people's lives. Yeah. Okay. Great. Any uh, James, any follow-on questions? No, I think that uh, pretty much answered. I think we're on the same ballpark. It's how to put this into the political football arena because right. uh, patients and the legal profession doesn't have a good understanding of, oh, you were following the guidelines, but those four from 1995 and now we're at 2005, right. those are the wrong guidelines, and you misdiagnosed or mistreated you know, 100,000 patients in that interim because you didn't have it right. Well, you know, it's a very interesting thing. Breast cancer is probably the second leading cause of malpractice suits. And when you think about it, it's not usually for breast cancer. A lot of these ca cases come up because someone had a cancer that came up quickly. But that's the truth. Those things happen. You know, and I think that, that being able to understand the biology better and I think we would do much better trying to have systems where we're constantly looking at what we do and improving what we do rather than suing over things that we have no control over. Yep. Yeah, great comment, great comment. Yeah, but, but you do raise the, the, the difficult issue of is how do we engage the political process productively and, and how do we engage patient awareness and the various advocacy groups um, to really carry forward the right message. Well, it's interesting. I think a lot of the so a number of the advocacy groups are very much behind the U.S. Preventive Task Force, um, uh, National Breast Cancer Coalition, um, Breast Cancer Action. Some groups like that are very much for it. I think uh, some of the groups like the American Cancer Society and Komen, you know, are worried that I think they're more concerned that the message isn't going to get out that we don't think screening makes a difference. But that's really not what the guidelines said. And I think that it, we would do a much better job to not fight over whether screening has benefits. Screening has benefit, but it also has plenty of harms. And I think what we need to do is start figuring out how can we tailor it, how can we do a more, uh, you know, a better job of applying it so that we do uh, more good and less harm. And you know, thinking about, you know, really understanding that well, not all the cancers that are diagnosed are going to be killer cancers. Let's make sure we don't overtreat them. So there's lots of I think there's lots of ways in which we can start moving forward to improve. Great. Well, thank you. And James, thank you for your question. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go ahead to the next caller, if we could, please. And as a final reminder, that is star one to ask your question. We'll go next to Y. Hen Chan with St. Michael's Hospital. I'll go ahead, please. Hi, this is Rebecca Lobb. And um, thank you, Dr. Essman, for um, speaking with us today and giving us the opportunity to ask questions about your manuscript. Um, my question is um, about um, risk factors for advanced stage breast cancer. Uh, one of the strongest risk factors for advanced stage breast cancer at diagnosis is lower income. And I'm wondering if you could describe how this um, social determinant of health could be integrated in your framework for advancing screening and detection of cancers, especially given that um, most low-income um, populations may not have these um, biomarkers that will eventually be developed to detect higher-risk cancers. So that is a great question, and it's something that uh, there's a number of people in the research community that are very, very focused on. And um, we, we think it probably has something to do with lower income. It may also have to do with ethnicity. Um, there are, you know, I think by understanding, by, by I, I think one of the benefits of trying to be or accepting of, of the limitations of mammography is to help the research community move forward. So, for example, we know that, you know, the younger you are, uh, the more likely you are to have what we call a triple negative cancer, hormone receptor negative and HER2 uh, negative and some of these sort of bad cancers. We've also been doing some work. Um, I've been working with Dr. Fumi Alapade in Chicago with in Nigeria and West Africa and understanding that, again, that, that these kinds of cancers are more common in those populations. We also understand that they're more uh, common in some of these uh, lower-income populations, but often very young you know, before the age at which we think screening is important. And what we're now trying to understand is, um, while there's a small fraction of patients that are at risk because they have family history for both breast and ovarian cancer, so BRCA1, uh, BRCA1 mutations, um, that's, not, that's still not the majority. And so a number of us are trying, trying, starting to think about um, 
how we can think differently. I'm part of the Early Detection Research Network, and one of the things that we're looking at is the presence of chronic inflammation and whether or not that could potentially be a risk factor, something you could even screen for. So we do understand that there are host factors that put people at risk. We don't know what those are quite yet, but people are starting to think about it and identify them. And you know, I think that I would expect over the next five years, I would hope that there will start to be now some of these new emerging markers that are really about the host and really trying to understand, you know, can we identify some of these markers that tell us who's at risk or we can apply something to identify just that group of people who are more at risk. Because you can't do this intensive screening or prevention work until you know, until you can narrow the population down a bit. And so it's something that we can afford and where we can truly um, identify a group at risk once, you know, it, it, you know, and I think it's sometimes the science comes first, you find out the people at risk, then you can start to figure out maybe how to hone in on that biology. That last graph in the paper that I described, the sort of marker where understanding that you've got to tie diagnosis and treatment back to your screening strategy. So the people who are at most risk for these bad cancers where they don't respond to our standard therapies, if we can understand what's driving those and what host factors may be driving those, that may give us a clue to how to screen and eventually how to prevent them. A perfect example of that is like in the for the BRCA1 carriers, you know, now what's, you know, all it's, at first all we could do is identify that they were at risk. But now there's actually a drug in clinical trials called PARP inhibitors, you know, where we think that we may be able to really reverse, um, you know, the chance of metastases. And if that's true, this may be eventually something that we could turn into a preventive. So I think that's part of the cycle of learning. And I agree with you that that is a really critical group of people on whom we have to focus, but we have to really first start by understanding through the biology of the disease, trying to link that back to host risk factors, and then try to figure out, okay, what can we do both for screening and prevention? But it's that kind of, that by, by having all the populations tied together and understanding that, we're much more likely to get there. So, so what, what I hear you saying is that you wouldn't use socioeconomic status per se to change right. how you approach screening. You, not, you not yet, because, because even though when you look at the group of people who have it, they may be more likely to have it, but if you looked at everyone together, that's still not their biggest risk. And, you know, it's still too uncommon for women in their 30s and early 40s. Just because they're uh, in a lower socioeconomic status doesn't mean that they're, you know, necessarily a priori at high-risk breast cancer. They're still infrequent enough that it's probably not worth routine screening. But there is an element of that, if we can figure that out, where we could then identify a particular population group within that group that's more at risk. So something more specific. We have to get to something more specific. But it is, it's, yeah. it's a direction that people are paying attention or trying to hone in on it. We do recognize that. Okay. Does that address your question, Rebecca? Um, it does somewhat. I guess what I wonder about, and I'm not sure if there's data on this, is really what percentage of um, advanced stage breast cancers diagnosed among low-income populations are high-risk cancers. Um, because whether they're high risk or not, they're still at advanced stage, which means um, they're um, less likely to be successfully treated in that particular group. So I can, I can tell you that, you know, it used to be that, that, that the thinking was, well, the reason why people come in at late stage is because of neglect and people not coming in and we just have to educate people. And I think that there is some element of that, but that's not the dominant thing. I think what we've learned is that, that, that there's biology driving that, that if you have particular kinds of cancers, they are going to grow fast and they are going to show up at a later stage. So what I'm saying is that I think what we understand is that some people are at risk for these very aggressive tumors. And it's not just, I mean, I could take someone who has what we call a luminal A cancer or a very low-grade, low-proliferative cancer, and leave them alone for three or four years, and nothing bad would happen. Or you might take another person who has a very, you know, a tumor that's growing very fast and you leave them alone for six months and it'll grow through the skin. These are not the same cancers. So we need different strategies and we need to understand better who's at risk for what kind of cancer. That's something that we, you know, our old model was cancer, yes or no. And that's not going to help us get to the answers that you want. So we know that there are certain populations probably that are at risk for these kinds of cancers, but we have to do a little better job of understanding what those host factors might be and then use that to develop a screening test. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. I think we've got time for one or perhaps two more calls. Uh, Tamika, next caller, please. And as a final reminder, that is star one to ask a question. Hello. 
And there appears to be no further questions at this time. I will turn the conference back over to our speakers for any additional or closing comments. Well, great. Well, thank, thank you very much. Um, I, I do have another question for you, actually. And, and you know, I, I think as we saw as the Preventive Service Task Force recommendations came out, really what an emotional issue cancer is. Um, and particularly breast cancer, but all kinds of cancer. A any advice on how we, we incorporate that strong emotional component that our patients have, either how we manage that as, as practitioners or how we can try to help leverage that into getting the right thing done? So I, I think that's a really good point, and I, and I think it's, I, you know, I feel badly that, that the whole thing became such a circus because I think that, you know, it became, oh, the U.S. Preventive Task Force is abandoning us and, you know, doesn't, doesn't care about cancer and doesn't want to save women's lives because that really isn't the issue. The issue is we do want to, we do want to get better. We do want to better do a better job of, 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 of trying to in, intervene where it will make a difference. Um, and I think that what we want to do is sort of take this conversation and say, okay, well, how can we make screening as effective as it can be? As I said, you know, thinking about, you know, well, maybe if you can screen a little less often and you can really, I mean, think about it. You know, we have a shortage of good mammographers in this country. And I already said earlier that having your films read by a good mammographer increases the chance that if you have a cancer, it will be found, and that if you don't have a cancer present, you know, minimizes your chance of being called back. So if we are decreasing the overall number of cancers by not screening populations that don't benefit, for example, you know, older women and older women with comorbidities, and maybe not quite quite so frequently for women in their 50s and 60s, um, and maybe not everybody in their 40s, that we might be able to also improve the quality of mammography because we would have more expert mammographers to participate. Right. So I think that there's a lot as leaders and practitioners that we should be thinking about in our own group. How do we do that? And how do we afford it? And I think that, that these are very important initiatives that we can undertake, particularly, you know, the thinking about IHI and sort of how we think about this. I mean, the same thing is true in cervical cancer. What are the reasons why they've reduced the guidelines uh, the frequency and the guidelines is that, again, these are slow-growing cancers, cervical cancers, and it's not that we haven't made a huge impact on reducing cervical cancer, uh, invasive cervical cancer, but we're still doing it at a, quite a cost where we're calling people back all the time, doing colposcopies and things. If you can get the same good outcome for less, people should welcome that, and, you know, women should welcome that. I mean, that's less, that, that's better for them. I mean, people should say, wow, if I can get the same good outcome, for less and avoid some some you know and avoid some tests that's good for me and and I think we have to address that culture if we really want to make a difference and we want to make you know make healthcare better in this in this country and 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 I and I would like there to be a little bit more of a thoughtful dialogue about you know how we say well look okay here's screening here's what we know about it and here's where it works best for men this is kind of slow to moderately slow growing cancers um but it's not as good for these other ones, so we need to sort of be working to improve that. Let's figure out how we can optimize screening for the people who do need it. You know, and, and you know, it's like in cervical cancer. If you've had normal pap smears, you can stop after the age of 30. So that means that you're not flooding the technology, the technologists with tons and tons of things to read. They'll read fewer of them, and their, and their quality will go up. These are known, you know, we want to have positive reinforcing cycles. So I think it is that kind of mentality that I think people need to have in a dialogue is, yes, we're all in it together. And it's not you're for cancer screening or you're against it. We're for it, and we want to make it as good as it can be. Right. But there are some things that we can do to improve it. It's not a perfect test. You know, and, and I think for us on, on the front lines, who when we sit down with a patient, we're not only talking about prostate or cervical cancer screening. We're really talking about a whole series of preventive tests yeah. uh, all at once. I think one of the keys, as you pointed out earlier, uh, is we do need to go ahead and develop easy-to-use decision support tools that are embedded in our electronic medical records, hopefully, yes. that will help us to both efficiently risk stratify our patients um, with hopefully the easy input of structured data, and then can also serve as an educational tool at point of care to reflect right back to our patients really where, where they stand and what they potentially stand to gain or risk Absolutely. by going ahead with screening. Absolutely. And, 
and and so you I want to just call back you mentioned earlier a particular risk stratification tool for prostate cancer that you thought was a useful one. Can you just remind our listeners of what that is? Yeah, it's the Prostate Cancer Risk Calculator, and it was developed by Dr. Ian Thompson as really from the PREVENT trial and really helping people understand, you know, given the risk factors that you have for uh, prostate cancer and your level of PSA, what's the likelihood of a positive biopsy? But not just any biopsy, whether it's high-grade or low-grade. And again, finding low-grade Prostate cancer, it's not clear how beneficial that is, but the high grades are the ones that you want to avoid, the higher Gleason grades. Uh, and, that, and that's obviously what we would focus on then in terms of counseling a patient. Correct. And, oh, okay. But it also to, to make sure that people think about, well, what could I do if I add finasteride? Would that help me? You know, Rather than just screen for it, maybe I can prevent it. I think those are the kinds of things that we want people to do. And again, with this Breast Health Decisions website that we're going to make available to anyone, again, something you could tie into with structured data and sort of give you a bunch of risk tools, you know, uh, you know, the different risk models to help understand what a woman's risk is for developing breast cancer and what are the available interventions that we have now. Again, let's at least do the best we can with the information we have because I think a lot of people don't get that. Right. Um, and, and when do you expect that to be available? Um, probably about three months. Wonderful. Well, we will stay tuned. Okay. And Thank you. That is about all the time we have. I guess I'd like to uh, thank you for your participation and ask if you have any just brief closing points you want to reiterate before we wrap up today. So again, I think it's important uh, just again uh, for, for patients or for clinicians and for patients to understand that all, breast, that all cancers are not the same and that screening works better for some than for others um, and uh, that's not a black and white thing and screening Screening is a little complicated because cancer is a little bit complicated, but understanding where it can benefit and where, it, where, and where the harms may come I think can help prepare people uh, for the results that they might find uh, from tests. And I think it's, um, I would definitely recommend being more judicious and tailoring your screening based on people's overall health and um, comorbidities, particularly as they get older and understanding who's at risk. You know, the younger you are, you're more at risk for aggressive cancer. The older you get, you're more at risk for some of these slow-growing endocrine-driven cancers where early detection is not likely to make a difference. So it's not like you're taking something away from someone. And uh, also to make sure that, you know, if someone has a palpable mass that's new, that, you know, encourage people to do to be aware of their bodies and to, to bring that to your attention. Um, and not be and not be afraid of uh, some of these recommendations and changing. We're trying to make it better. If that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, and people should welcome the opportunity to uh, do less for the same good outcome.